0: Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Eduardo Jordan coming to you from Radio 4 b in Mianjin, Brisbane. And today in the show...
1: Prior to this, we had no shared single plan or vision for regional Australia. And so at its core is a vision to rebalance the nation.
0: A new report shows how Australian regions can be rebalanced. We have all the details. Also, the situation in Gaza gets worse with its hospital being cut off. And later today...
2: We're just here to chat with some of the parliament people and talk about surfing and what it can do for the community as a sport and how good it is for not only your physical health but the mental as well.
0: A new group launched in Canberra will discuss how surfing is beneficial for the community. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're on Across Australia, thanks to the Community Radio Network and the support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today, hashtag Shift the Power was the rallying call for thousands of Australian school children and people concerned with climate change, who marched across eight cities to protest today. Organiser of school strike for climate in Sydney, Mimi Park, says young Australians sent a clear message to Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek.
3: The vibes at the strike in Sydney were really good. We had a really good turnout, and I think we sent a clear message to Tanya Plibersek that um, young people care
2: about the climate right now, and that we don't want new coal and gas.
0: So it's the first time the protest will tell Prime Minister Anthony Albanese to act on climate change. How do you see this government's performance on climate action?
3: We believe that this government's performance on climate is appalling, frankly. Uh, they kept on talking about how
2: they want to host COP days said they are leaders in climate but continually, continually let down young people and First Nations people through approving new coal mines, through not taking action, through just ignoring everyone that is telling them to please help them out
0: of this climate crisis. In Melbourne, The Wire's contributor from First Nations Media Australia Monique Rubeck caught up with a First Nations woman who was part of the March Day. My name is Chelsea
3: Aniba I am a Daiba woman from the Cape Way, Seven Clans of saiba Island in the Torres Strait and what, what, what are you doing here today? So I'm here um, invited to speak uh, at Parliament, introducing the um, Bill for Duty of Care with the youth. So um, I've just been in Canberra, a panellist, invited panellist to speak there, and um, also just got invited here and with the strike today, and looking very forward to today, and, and it's all about climate change, and saving the country, saving the land, saving our people, especially with climate change for the future. Um, what would you like to say to the country? Well, there's a lot of things I can say, but how can you narrow it down to like a couple of seconds? How can we uh, know and go to sleep at night if we know about what's going to happen in the future, but we're not doing it, the government's not doing anything? So the only thing that we can do is support the youth because they are the ones that are going to be living tomorrow. I can't speak for other people's country, but I can speak for my country of Saibai, is that um, we need to, as elders, and elders could be, I'm not, I'm not um, saying that I'm old, but I am, you know, I'm a mother of truth, is to keep teaching the generation, the children, about our culture, our songs, our stories, about our lands and our sea, because that is what our identity is that is our heritage and if climate change is changing that then we're going to be singing songs to our next generation they're going to be singing the song that's telling the stories to their generation but where is the land and the sea at that time in, in those years they're going to be looking back and saying oh this song is about that place it's about that country but they can't identify that song with the country because of climate change it's just come inundation erosion changing over time where is the song without the country? There is no song. It'll, it'll get to that point where they're going to be, the next generations are just going to be looking at pictures and hearing about the stories and trying to imagine what it used to look like, sit and, and trying to imagine the sounds of the birds. There used to be birds here. They used to migrate here, but not here at that time. There used to be turtle and dugong during this season, but no more now. You know, things like that. And it's sad. It makes me sad.
0: Organizers claim strikes also went ahead in Perth, Adelaide, Tarree, Noosa, Brisbane, and a very, very windy Byron Bay, where Bay FM's Mia Armitage spoke with the local strike organizer Alani Field, who explained her motivation for getting involved. I just
4: really wanted to do something. Like, I felt so powerless, and that there was just all these horrible things going on, and like, no one was doing anything, really, or at least in Australia, it seemed like. Like, they were saying they were going to do all this stuff and then nine new fossil fuel projects were opened. Like, are you crazy? What's wrong? Like, we need to open our eyes and wake up, actually take action. And you are talking there about the change in government, so you must have had a sense of hope that turned to disappointment. Is that what you mean? When the the Labor came in federally Mm. last year? Yeah, definitely. The climate election, they said, promised all these things. Net zero by 2030, but still, opening fossil fuels projects doesn't make sense. Like, that's not taking action to reach zero net emissions. The hashtag is shift the power. Um, And it's in every sense of the word shift the power to the people and shift the power from fossil fuels to renewable energies so this morning i can't count i don't know if you can but it seems to me probably fewer than a thousand would you agree yeah, with that it yeah. turned out definitely it's smaller than the past years it's been a long time since it's been popular but i think that's why it's more important than ever to bring it back up because it's almost like people are giving up but that's not true. We
0: we care. That was local strike organiser in Byron Bay, Alani Field, speaking with Bay FM's Mia Armitage.
5: Across Australia, you're listening to The Wire, Community Radio's National Current Affairs program.
0: The Regional Australia Institute kicked off the Region's Rising Summit in Orange this week to start conversations around issues affecting regional Australia. At the event, the Institute launched its Regionalisation Ambition Plan for 2032, a long-term plan to ensure a successful future for all Australians living in the regions. National Radio News Director Frank Vanacorso attended the event and asked CEO of the Regional Australia Institute Liz Ritchie what are the unique settings to make regional Australia thrive?
1: Well, we've been talking to our friends here in Orange at the Region's Rising Summit, getting under the hood of our regionalisation ambition, which is the first decadal plan that was co-designed by regional constituents and our friends in industry and government, because prior to this, we had no shared single plan or vision for regional Australia. And so at its core is... vision to rebalance the nation and when we talk about rebalancing the nation we're not just talking about rebalancing population although that is occurring what we're talking about is how do we actually level the playing field how do we rebalance the services that we know regional communities desperately crying out for even uh, before COVID and the global pandemic regions were, were underserviced in terms of our childcare, education communities services and the like. The purpose of the report and the ambition is to track these really important targets within, uh, such as childcare, such as education attainment.
5: Okay, there's some of the fundamental issues that really have been perennially with us for decades. Mm. Exacerbated by COVID, but more so more contemporaneous issues like the cost of living. What kind of barriers do you face with governments around the uh, country, if not the world, looking at the cost of living, which affects global populations, looking at the war in Ukraine more Mm. recently, Israel, Hamas Mm. and Gaza? How do you put your concerns front and centre of governments that are otherwise preoccupied?
1: It's such a good question because when you look at the job of our Prime Minister and our premiers and indeed all of the Ministers in National Cabinet, you know, they do have very significant and important day jobs. And that is why I guess, you know, I know that the Prime Minister has publicly said on many occasions he is about delegation to his Ministers. So we are really taking a whole of ministerial engagement approach and part of the work and part of today's conference is about getting out and around and across the country so that we're not just talking to the ministers in Canberra, we're actually engaging deeply with our ministers and decision-makers and local communities and local businesses right across the country. And so having Minister Moriarty here as the Minister for Regional New South Wales, that's really important. And the conversations that uh, I had today will continue behind closed doors. So what we do publicly is is bring the the information to the foreground and ensure that we can discuss and debate and try to test and learn from one another. That's what we do as a think tank.
5: You face fundamental barriers as an organisation and we, together as a society, services that were once taken for granted, like housing, health, bulk billing, the contraction of banking services, all these conspire, their contraction conspire to at least posing a second thought in the minds of people who would like to move to the regions but but won't or can't because of those diminishing lack of services what are you going to do about it and well, this, how would your strategy yeah. address those
1: well this is why our strategy and plans firmly focused on liveability so to your point about childcare healthcare education community services well-being this is what we are really interested the work at the institute is about looking at people and people's needs and the society's needs um, there are other organizations back bacteria infrastructure that are very deeply focused in infrastructure and they're kind of hard infrastructure as I would call it to your issue around some of the bank closures um, look these are difficult issues and I, I guess the way I try to think about it is our society is changing, and I talked about this in my address. So we're experiencing a major societal transformation that's happening on a number of fronts. And so technology has changed the way we live, and we know that banks are not being used in the way they once were, and we've got plenty of data on that. But I think what the banks are recognising and certainly being across the latest inquiries is that banks can be used in a number of different ways and that that desire to have face-to-face contact, to talk about your retirement, to talk about your investments is where banks are seeing the greater need. So they're going to look different.
0: CEO of Regional Australian Institute, Liz Richie Ending the report by National Radio News, Frank Bonacorso. You're listening to The Guaya, independent current affairs on community and indigenous radio. I'm Eduardo Jordan in Brisbane. A big hello to our friends in Ali Springs on ACCC 102.1 FM, to our listeners in Bathurst on 2MCE FM, and to the other side of the country to Radio Gulari in Broome, Western Australia. Palestinian doctors have expressed grave concerns over the fate of hundreds of patients and civilians sheltering in Gaza's largest hospital, which has been cut off for more than a day after Israeli troops launched an Operation Day. Negotiations are underway to evacuate 36 premature babies from the Al-Shifa hospital, which lost access to incubators because of a fuel shortage. Plans for an evacuation have been further challenged by an inability to communicate with the hospital, a difficult security situation and a lack of fuel. The wire's craft asked lecturer in international studies at the University of Sydney, Dr. Martin Kia, what the likely fate is of the newborn babies if they're not able to be safely evacuated.
6: They need the incubators to survive and they'll die without electricity. Now, the lack of electricity in Gaza is not a new story. Prior to this war, there were four hours of electricity in Gaza, two hours in the morning and two hours in the evening, and hospitals were predominantly run on generators and the international community would pay for fuel to be allowed into the Gaza Strip. Now, Israel controlled everything that moved, controlled everything that moved into and out of the Gaza Strip, all the food, all the water, all the fuel, the electricity, everything that people needed to survive, Israel controlled. So the, the electricity shortage in the hospital is not something that is di- is directly uh, related to the conflict. The fact that there is no electricity now is the fact that after the attacks, the Israeli government shut off all electricity. So in that respect, the Israeli government is then responsible for the deaths, I would argue, for the deaths of those, those babies, for shutting off the electricity. Now, it's a moot point in the fact that, you know, they're now fighting over... Um, control of the hospital, so it's more than likely that the electricity would have been disrupted anyway, but the fact that these babies cannot be evacuated surely would have given some within Israel pause for thought, and the international community, I would have thought, would have needed to intervene in a more strident manner to get some sort of ceasefire before this operation took place. Uh, I think we need to remember that the United States veto is the United Nations Security Council resolution calling on Israel and Hamas to reach a ceasefire. So all of these factors are operating in the background um, about this, these attacks that we see on this hospital and the dire fate of those children and the, and the, the other uh, patients within that hospital. What
1: role has international laws played in the conflict in terms of both sides upholding their uh, into international law.
6: You're not supposed to deliberately, deliberately target medical facilities under international law. And equally, you're not supposed to use medical facilities as a cover. Now, this is where it really gets into a grey area. If Hamas is defending the hospital, which I suspect they are, then Israel can claim that Hamas is embedding themselves in the hospital and using the hospital As a cover, both sides, both Hamas and Israel, have been guilty of breaching uh, international law. On the the 7th of October attacks, Hamas deliberately targeted civilians and took civilian hostages, which is against international law. Equally, Israel, in its response to the October 7th attacks under international law, they are meant to be proportionate to the threat posed. And they dropped 6,000 bombs in six days in, in northern Gaza and that's more than the US, United States dropped in Afghanistan throughout the entire 19, 2019. So that gives you... And these aren't small bombs. These are uh, 1,000, 2,000-kilogram bombs, in, in addition to the missiles that are being used as well. So that is not a proportionate response. The Arab League has said that they are gathering evidence uh, against Israel to present to the National Criminal Court about war crimes and crimes against humanity, uh, I wouldn't, it's not out of the realms of possibility that uh, uh, Israeli leaders will be referred to the ICC. And in addition, I don't see any reason why Hamas leaders wouldn't similarly be uh, referred to the ICC for allegations of uh, war crimes. The only thing against against, uh, the Palestinian side is that Palestine is not a state. So the ICC may very well decide that it has no jurisdiction against Palestinians, that's, a, that's something for the ICC really to decide.
0: Lecturer in International Studies at the University of Sydney, Dr. Martin Kierdeh. Speaking with The Wires, Talia Kraft. In an unusual pairing, surfers made waves in Parliament House this week to launch the Parliamentary Friends of Surfing group. World champion surfers and local heroes traveled inland to promote the importance of surfing culture and its positive impact on communities. The initiative aims to foster the initiative aims the initiative aims to foster a stronger connection with lawmakers. With force in hand, the athletes met with policymakers to with surfers. With surfboards in hand, the athletes met with policymakers to advocate for coastal conservation and the promotion of surfing as a healthy and inclusive lifestyle. Homegrown World Tour champion surfer India Robinson attended the event and sat down with National Radio News political correspondent Amanda Cobb.
2: I'm here with Surfing Australia for the initiative, you know, Parliamentary of Friends, and we're just here to chat with some of the parliament people and talk about surfing and what it can do for the community as a sport and how good it is for not only your physical health but the mental as well.
7: Yeah, and so obviously like you've been involved in the surfing community for a really long time. How do you think it impacts local communities.
2: Yeah, so I started surfing when I was three. You know, my brothers and my father got me on a board at a young age. And, yeah, just the friendships I made through surfing and the tight community we have. You can see it all around the world how big the sport is growing. And I think it just comes down to that community feel, you know, going to the beach with close friends or even paddling out, meeting people you've never met before. And I think it's just coming together as one to try and do better for the whole world really so yeah. What message do you want to take to politicians? Yeah I think just spreading the message of how big the sport is growing it's an Olympic sport now for the first time a few years ago we went to the Olympics and Owen Wright got a medal for us and I think that really put us on the board and now it's growing day by day and I think just talking to them and getting them to realise how strong of an influence surfers and the surfing community can have on the younger generation coming up and it's just such a positive influence that we can have. So yeah. I think just chatting with them more and getting them to see potentially if they could help fund some cool initiatives like getting some younger surfers to go surfing more and the Australian Border riders battle and not only that but to the professional level like where myself and a lot of others are. It's a tough sport. We travel a lot and it's expensive. That's the reality of it. So If they can support us with all the training and the professional side of it, it will go a long way and it'll bring more medals to Australia.
7: Yeah. So I think this is something that a lot of people don't really know about. You know, when it comes to sport, you know, obviously there's the the kind of amateur stuff and then then the more professional stuff, but it's not really clear in a lot of sports how people make ends meet before they get to the big leagues where they're, you know, potentially winning prizes and, and getting money for it. How does it work in surfing?
2: Yeah, so there's the sponsorship side of things. If you're sponsored by a brand, they can provide you with some money. Or if you're on the other side of it, like myself, I would work a second job, which for me, I enjoy coaching. And then I actually developed my own brand, which is Queen in Me. And it's all about providing a platform for the younger female generation. Yeah, you know, it's a tough sport. For me, I rely on winning. I do. I have to win in order to get to the next competition. So Prize money is a big thing and thankfully the WSL do provide equal prize money for men and women, which is huge, and I'm very grateful for that. But, yeah, if you don't have a sponsor, you're working a second job, or you're relying on your winnings.
7: That's really tough. And, you know, we've seen that with, you know, even like the Matildas, right? You know, we're really having a national conversation around like particularly women's sport, and how a lot of the time men can afford to, you know, just play sport and not have to work second jobs. But that's often not the case with women.
2: Exactly. Yeah, I think what the Matildas have done for not only Australia, but worldwide, on the female sport side of things, it's not just soccer, it's everywhere around the world for female sport. I think they've put us on the map and they've shown that females can do just as bad as much as the guys. So if not better, we got a better result with new guys this time around. So it's really cool to see and I think, yeah, they're really paving the way for us. Definitely. Um, now you mentioned um, mental
7: health right at the beginning. Yeah. What kind of impact do you think surfing has had on your own mental health and then perhaps what you've seen, uh, the impacts of it on people around you?
2: Yeah, I think there's a level of it comes to just being in nature it's 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 statistically proven that it's best to be out in nature and Mm. for us to be emerged in the ocean and surrounded by wildlife and yeah it's does something and I don't know exactly what it does scientifically but it's very positive on your brain so for me I personally know that without surfing I would have been in a probably pretty dark place and I went through I've been through a lot of injuries as well so if I'm not surfing I still am at the beach every day I'm still going for a swim it feels like home to me so yeah not only is it good for your own mental health but the people around you as well you're a happier healthy person when you're able to go out in the ocean and enjoy what we have in Australia. But
7: what's it like when when you're out in that sort of deeper water, you know, waiting for a wave? Can you describe just like what it's, yeah, what what, what you're kind of thinking, what you're feeling when you're kind of out there just bobbing on the ocean?
2: Yeah, I I think I can only like express it as just fully at peace. You're at peace with everything, you know. You're not thinking about what's happening on land or all the jobs you have to get done. You're in the present.
0: World Tour champion India Robinson Day Ending the story by National Radio News, Amanda Cobb. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening wherever you're in Australia. The Wire is a co-production between Community Radio Stations 2 ser in Sydney, Radio Adelaide, 3ZZZ, 4ZZZ and Radio 4EB in Brisbane, with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. We'll see you next week, same time, on your local station. And if you would like to listen to any of our stories again, you can go to our website at thewire.org.au. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Turval and Yagara countries where this program has been produced, and we pay our respects to Aboriginal Elders past, present and emerging. Today The Wire came to you from Radio 4 b in Mianjin, Brisbane. I'm Eduardo Jordan. Thanks so much for your company and we'll see you next time on The Wire.